Hello, hello. Welcome to Watching Silent Films, where we watch uh, a feature film or a series of films, and we talk about it. Uh, here with me are our co-hosts, uh, Bobby and Lily. Hello. Greetings again. Hello. hello. Greetings again. Long time no talk. So, <laughs> this week, it's going to be kind of like a bonus episode, I kind of call it, because we're just going to talk about Dante's Inferno, Berlini and, and Company from Italy in 1911. I'm going to read the real quick description of what this film is, and then we'll just uh, keep going. Um, uh, Italy took France's film art movement to new heights with this internationally successful epic, depicting the classic tale of Dante in the circles of hell. It is the first Italian feature length, and the visuals are based on Gustave Doré's woodcuts from Divine Comedy, which can be found, oh, I guess they link to a... Um, a a full print of the entire artwork from the Gustave uh, Dore's uh, wood cuttings. Uh, have you guys heard of the the Gutenberg project? Side note, but it's related. I have, but I don't know what it is. So, as you know, Gutenberg is the printing press, right? He uh, was the guy who created the thing where you can mass produce books, essentially. Oh, okay. Hmm. You, you guys know that, right? Yes. All right, cool. So, like, this online, uh, Gutenberg.org, is taking his name and basically saying anything that literature, like, is that it, or any literary work that's in the public domain, we're going to try to make it available on the internet uh, for free. So that was their desire because it's trying to accomplish a mission where, like, knowledge is free instead of locked behind, like, you have to pay for books and stuff like that. That makes sense? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about that is uh, works like this can now be found for free online. So, so the entire uh, collection of woodcutting. Now, Gustave Dory is a an artist who did a lot of just paintings and uh, woodcutting, carvings, and various different things. He's a kind of a is a French artist, um, printmaker, illustrator, uh, comic artist caricature sculptor uh his primary thing is wood engraving he en- engraved these illustrations in wood and then the impression you take from the wood on paper is the result of what you see like hmm. so that's kind of how, how he worked uh his art and uh so he you know in this uh gutenberg link there's a full um sort of collection of the his entire works of his artwork uh called i guess i think that the title for this is called the vision of hell uh by dante other garrett but also but you know it's translated of course by uh, henry francis carey but the artwork is um by gustave dor and he's the guy that um a lot of these the films framing um is based on so the it's interesting because in a few weeks we're also going to talk about alice guipache and she did a uh, life of christ based on another great artist uh james tosset's uh watercolors and so you'll see these filmmakers take these great artists work and basically made it into films (laughs) so i thought that was interesting so Anyways, um, knowing that is going to be tremendously helpful for um, us kind of taking a, a look at this movie. So before we get to the movie, um, have you guys read the book or you guys know of the story of the book or thoughts or comments about the book itself? Hmm. I've known about it since high school, right. Dante's Inferno. I personally haven't read it. I read it a few years ago, as a matter of fact. Um, it's a very hard read. You, you read the, the uh, Carey's translation, right? Because he's the guy who translated it from Italian to English. Old English, really. I have no idea whose translation it was. Yeah, um, I mean, typically, almost all of the works that we have today of this uh, Divine Comedy, uh, it's written in Italian, uh, and it was translated in the 1800s by this, uh, this translator. So it would be him, usually. 
I don't think I don't. Oh, think it's I've a read very another... very big book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and they're all they're all fat books. So it's a big book, and it's and it's very hard reading. It's, exactly. Uh... It, because it's a uh, it's a it's kind of like a epic poem. Exactly. It, and I found really, myself going over chapters several it, times really to figure a, them out. It's not a narrative. It's not like a, a, a typical novel. It is story. absolutely not. And yeah. it, it is actually really, it actually is pretty hard to decipher exactly. what, what they're talking about because a lot of it is allegory <laughs> and imagery. Yeah. Right. It's. I, I didn't enjoy me reading it very much. I was forcing myself to get through it. So. The, the the movie was much more entertaining to watch. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So I have this. I've had this book for a long time. And I, it's one of those things that I wanted to go back to try to read. Good luck. Uh, I I've taken a few stabs at it over the years. And yeah. I, I don't think I've ever. Mostly due to my own laziness, mind you. I'm not. It took I, forever. It well, took me I'm forever just, to get through it because holy. Holy cow, I want to say it was really like reading the same chapter several times in a row just yeah. to understand. Well, because mm. of the nature of poem and poetry. Mm-hmm. That, that's the hard part. It's not so much the content because I, I actually recently myself, I've taken into reading uh, more now than in the... I've probably read more in the last two years probably than ever in my entire life. <laughs> um, I find that it helps to sharpen my mind because if I don't read, this is just my own personal self. I know that if I don't read, my brain just rots from watching all the ton of movies, <laughs> whether it's silent movies or any other movies or content or something. As so I've, I've taken up to reading all sorts of things, and um, and uh, uh, one of the things I really want to get through, maybe this year, maybe next year, is trying to read through all the books I own, <laughs> which is sad <laughs> because I used to buy a ton of books thinking I'll get to reading them, and so I'm like, now's the time. So I'm gonna, and, and this is Dante's. Inferno is definitely one of the, the books that is on my list. It, I ha- I pulled out my copy, and I think I sat in the sun somewhere, and like the edges were all like browned out. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. wow, it's been in the sun, weird, <laughs> or something. I don't know. Like it's got wear and tear because when I bought it new, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I haven't even read it, but it's got wear and tear just from age, <laughs> just aged mm-hmm. wine or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I. And, and while I really wanted to kind of discover the story by reading it myself, because of the this movie, I ended up just going ahead and reading the the story summaries in my research, kind of the cliff notes, as it were. And of course, there's a lot of competitors now out there. I think Sparks Notes is another one. There's a bunch of other ones, and, and I, I I kind of high level figured out the story where uh, it's a. Um, epic poem devoted to um what he's writing about is this main character basically uh has so dante's personal life he himself um was married but was in love with another i think woman or girl who was called beatrice and so like his sort of passion and love for this and, and girl who you know died young ended up being something was an inspired muse for one of the first works that he wrote about uh, another series of poems love poems about this girl i think after she she died maybe hmm. don't quote me on that but then ultimately this character is in the book so in this book dante's divine comedy she is the object of his affection. She is the one that he longs to be reunited with because she's dead. But and he wants to basically go through hell and purgatory and reach the heavens and be reunited with her. Essentially, that's the, the story. And so this story takes place across three separate parts. Uh, Inferno is the first one, which takes him through hell, and. It, I sent a link earlier to you guys. Today. I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch that, but um, it summarizes the story, and, it, and the visuals were very interesting to me because the way he approached it was in in this story uh, that Dante would go like his story was that this character would go in in like you know how like when you like the 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 saying that if you dig 
far enough from here, you're going to end up in China, <laughs> the mm-hmm. side of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, conceptually, that's how they're framing hell. So you would start here in a cave somewhere, you go down in hell, and you go traverse through all these different things, and then all the circles of hell, and then end up on the other side of the earth where there would be some sort of like a, uh, a pyramid or something like that that he would traverse. And that's the purgatory part, or mountain, rather. And once you climb that mountain, it would then go to the next phase, which is para- paradise. And once you go beyond paradise, you would then essentially get to heaven. So that's hmm. the three, the, the, the book itself, the work itself, the epic poem is divided into three parts. Uh, hell, uh, purgatory, uh, and paradise. And there are nine circles of hell, and there are seven terraces of uh, purgatory, loosely correlated with the seven deadly sins. And I want to say nine, or I forgot the last part, but <laughs> whatever the last part is, it's it's kind of the spheres. The last few is the spheres of heaven. And once you kind of journey through the entire thing, that's when he reaches heaven and <laughs> gets reunited with Beatrice and, and stuff like that. So that's high level, the story. So... Um, but this film is only focused on the infernal part, which takes a journey through it. It doesn't even do, it it doesn't even go on to purgatory or paradise, okay. Mm-mm. And so um, that's why I wanted to highlight before we get into the film itself. It's just just the original work itself because this film is so. I think it takes a lot of deep cuts into the story, especially in the infernal section. So, I think if you don't know the the original work itself, uh, it's going to be really hard to comprehend, even though it's got a really rich imagery, right, in the film. I agree. Oh, yeah. And so if you don't know anything about Dante or Inferno, then you will be irrevocably lost. Mm. <laughs> so, um, just some background. This is a uh, um, 1911 uh, uh, Italian film. It's adapted from... Uh, not just the the work itself of literature, but also again again based on the uh, Gustavo Gore's uh, wood carving uh, artwork, and uh, it screened on uh, March tenth, nineteen eleven. It made a lot of money, two million dollars U.S., um, which is pretty significant. I think it's roughly twenty two mil or something modern day money, which is hmm. nothing to scoff at. Um, so yeah, I, do you guys have any initial thoughts about the film itself? We can finally get into the film itself. Hmm. Well, as you were saying a little bit ago, it's kind of hard to follow, but from just watching this movie, I, I thought I followed it along pretty well, minus... You know, all the names that kept popping up. I, you know, because I don't have quite the book context of the original story. I was like, who are all these people? But, you know, they bring up uh, the, I guess, Roman gods, which are just the Greek gods and everything related to that kind of myth and lore. And then they bring up Christianity people like Caiaphas, I think, because he was... Oh, I just, I read who he was, because I actually thought he was the same person as Judas, but he's not. He's just, like, some guy that plots to kill Jesus. But it just all these names were, I don't know, kind of thrown in there, because I've he- also heard of Virgil, but I am not mm-hmm. 100% sure who he is in history. But for the most part, I thought it was actually very well planned out. I mean, they're just, basically, it's a travel job <laughs> that they're running on so they're just traveling around the place the seven realms of hell yeah it's a guided tour <laughs> it really is a guided tour <laughs> hmm. any thoughts bob well i i enjoyed watching watching it i um i thought the music was very eerie and it was but it was constant um I think the, the the sense of misery and dread, I think it's constant because it wants to wear on 
the viewer's psyche <laughs> and make them realize this is dismal. Um, you you guys right. watched that uh, YouTube link, right? Yeah. Not sure. You, well, you watched it on YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. I watched it whichever way it, you came through. Yeah, I linked yeah, it. Yeah, on YouTube, yeah. yeah you, so, you sent it to so me. So the reason why I asked is because if you guys read the comments under the YouTube, you realized that that whole thing that you watched was actually shot uh with the accompaniment music uh accompaniment like live oh absolutely yeah i did see that that was pretty amazing that's what i mean so at the end of the film you actually hear the audience exactly that's what i mean to say so if you read the comments at the bottom it says uh i was asked by the organization uh cinema ray in early september 2016 the music's come on mute it <laughs> uh let me see oh, okay so the comment says i was asked by organization uh this is mike uh kiker in uh, 2017 he said i was asked by organization cinema ray in early september 2016 to perform a live score with a silent horror film as part of their month-long silent screams with live music series of the choices I was given, Inferno was the first film that I watched, and even before finishing it or watching any of the other films, I knew this was the film meant for me. I was disturbed on a psychic level, yet intrigued mm. at what amazing feats the filmmakers had accomplished in their day. With the exception of the overture recorded in the September 2016, a few recurring themes, this score is about 95% improvised. I worked at various sounds and progressions, but didn't decide on a set structure until the, within the performance itself. I just reacted naturally to the feel of the film as it progressed. This was an absolute labor of love put together with uh, Rich and Allison from Cinema Ray and, re- and to release. Enjoy with an open mind. Wow. So, like, um, this was, this hasn't been released on the, like, most recently. I think the last few releases was from, like, more than 20 years ago. And I think uh, you know the Tangerine Dreams or something? Is that... I love I love Tangerine Dream. So they did a a soundtrack for this. <laughs> um, I can understand that. Yeah. So mm. it, that that copy is probably on DVD and it's probably due to rights issues. Probably not on YouTube, at least not legally. So that's I own, what I've been I saying th- is own three or four albums by Tangerine Dream. Right. So the and they actually done a number of silent films, by the way. Just so you know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but the point is, it's hard to get access to uh, the the those versions of this film uh, on YouTube because it's you know it's copyrighted, right? So it's illegal to rip that and put that on YouTube. They would just take that down. Um, but the DVD is out of print, so you can't even mm-hmm. like order it from anywhere online. Mm-hmm. And the copies are limited releases because they they run a few pressings of this. When they run a press, it'd be like fifteen hundred copies or a thousand copies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And once it's gone, it's gone. So you can only buy them on eBay or something for, I haven't checked, but it's supposedly like for a couple hundred dollars because they're limited. Like it doesn't even exist. You can't even legitimately buy from anywhere because of the limited resource, right? Hmm. And, but unfortunately, that's kind of the, the way silent films are. Yeah. Is it's hard to get access. Yeah, to. I bought them as imports. Exactly. So I thought it was very interesting too. I love the where they use the line. It's a classic line. It's used like, it always makes me think of Dungeons and Dragons. Abandon hope all ye who enter here. Exactly. <laughs> when they were about to go into the cave, it was like, uh-oh. But that's from the book, right? So. I, I believe so, yes. Yeah, it's but I don't remember it distinctly. Yeah. It's it's the, right before the, the gates of hell. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the word. Any other thoughts? Um, I thought there was a very clever scene um, where the the bodies were swirling around in the. It looked like they were in the air, yeah. and it was very easy to tell that what he did is he took a bunch of bodies on the floor and he and he walked around them with the camera focused on them, yeah. and then he took the and then he took the scene and he rotated it. But it was still very cool to see all these bodies flying around above them, looking like they were ghostly, you know, flying, you know, when, you know, 
modern critical eye, I mean, it looks like they're lying on the ceiling, but right. but I still thought it was clever. I liked it. I also like the scene where, with the severed head, where the man comes out holding up his severed head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That got me. That was crazy. Yeah, that was very good. And I love the the scene with Satan. I mean, I thought I I never heard of Satan being having three faces, uh, and but the way they had him eating the person, yeah. you know, that half the body was in his mouth. Mm-hmm. That was freaky too. There's all all these is from from the books, so he that's why I said it's deep cuts because it's like he uh, kept so close to the books, mm. like all of these things, but. Even even this movie, even as long as it was, it, it can't cover. It only covers a fraction of what's in those books. Well, it's a third of the in books, the book. right? Because the in terms of the scope of the story, right? Because remember, this is only the hell part. Remember, there's a uh, a purgatory, and then there's other paradise. So this movie doesn't even do, deal with any of those. But you're right. Right. Even under the um, the uh, the, uh, the the infernal the hell parts. There's nine uh, circles of hell, but if you dig in, in uh, the the I think the eighth circle of hell, there's like ten pouches or different yeah. sections they go through, and then the ninth circle of hell has four different zones. So like, it's actually not just like I mean it is nine circles, but it's also like each of those circles, the the last two is another, like, 14 zones. <laughs> yep. yeah. So it's, like, you know, 14 plus, you know, uh, 7, right? So it's, like, closer to 21 sections yeah. Uh, yeah. of hell. And I was reading on my phone, and so, and, and oh, my goodness. I, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but going through it page by page on my phone and having to back scroll and forward scroll and back scroll, Wow. Oh, you mean you read the book on your phone? I read the book on my commute to work on my phone, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which was not the best way to read it. That, that, <laughs> that's like that's like going to hell, right? <laughs> <laughs> Must be hell. So, uh, first thing I want to note is that in the beginning, there's like these like lion and leopard and, and, and uh a she-wolf, I guess. Yeah, there are three wolves. Avarice, Pride, and Lust. Right, but the wolf is just the canine dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love exactly. how it's just a dog coming to the canine. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. He dressed like, up, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's the fearsome she-wolf. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I thought yeah. the same thing. Yeah, I, I love that little must-be-his personal pet or something yeah but anyway <laughs> actually my it. first comment on the movie was that my first impression for the first few scenes was it felt like a home movie yeah but with the music and with the topic you quickly let that go it's like watching a stage production and exactly you, you know you quickly get into it so And like a stage production, too, since we were just talking about the animals, uh, I thought the puppetry was really good and the monsters they had to create because that's what I thought the first animal. So it was supposed to be a panther that represented avarice, which I didn't think that connection went very well. But I could the way they kind of had the monster framed, you couldn't tell what kind of animal it was, whether it was mm. real or just a guy in a suit. And it made mm. it extra creepy, too. So I thought that was very interesting mm-hmm. and then dante's just like oh geez what's going on let me go near it oh maybe i'll walk away oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> this guy <laughs> like what is his deal <laughs> again like this type of you know very theatrical stage mm-hmm. you know uh very conceptual sort of acting and you know you know by its nature this epic poem is is kind of that way it's a lot more symbolic yeah. yeah, I couldn't figure out why they called it a poem. It did not seem like a poem to me. It didn't have any rhyming, that's for sure. But I think it meant more along the idea of the Iliad, because that's yep. supposed to be um, a thematic poem, and that kind of reminded. I mean, I thought that that's yeah, yeah. how the connection could be. 
Yes. So the connection is that the uh, uh, Virgil is the author of Aeneid, and Aeneid is essentially um, the founding of Rome. Like the the way oh. that the Rome is found is because of the Romulan and Remus. There's two brothers, and I right. forgot the details now. But the point is that he wrote that work, and he based a lot of it. He has a lot of links with Homer's, you know, Odyssey and Iliad. Uh, because it's kind of like the the Roman side of the same similar types of story, the Trojan War and stuff like that. And so, uh, Dante, just the the book itself, the epic poem, uh, when he wrote it, he based it on a lot of research, like things that he himself was reading at the time, and a lot of the mythology of the Greek and Roman myth uh, got seeped into his work. But also combined with his sort of take on sort of Christian mythology, not necessarily the Bible itself, but just sort of many things surrounding Christianity and Catholicism itself. So it wasn't just like he's adapting the Bible. He was also going deep into a lot of uh, there's a term called Christian mysticism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is like it gets into like you know, things that are not in the Bible, but in like insular stories attached to it. Well, uh, it's true that a lot of the imagery that everyone, th- that most people are um, accustomed to thinking of as hell and Satan comes from this story. Exactly. You're talking about Dante itself, the work. Yeah. The, the work. Exactly. Yeah. Created, actually created a, a facet of our society and even worldwide, where the devil is seen in a certain way and the hell is seen in a certain way, the lake of fire. Even Hexen, right? Hexen, heavily influenced by this, right? Yeah. Remember when we watched that? The mm-hmm. look of Hexen, right? Mm hmm. So. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we have to kind of go through circle by circle. No, 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 but there are, that's the, essentially the story is that it it takes through, it, it takes you through a journey. So Virgil is the author of Aenid and that's why he's kind of the guide for the main character, you know, the, the, so the, so that, uh, it, it follows sort of the, the poet himself. I think he, essentially Dante inserted himself into the story as he's kind of the main uh, eyes of the audience in the book itself, but also in the movie. And so Dante himself was guided by Virgil as if Virgil, the author was kind of his muse, but also tour guide. And that um, kind of helped him along on this tour. And in the beginning of the movie, Virgil was talking to Virgin Mary and, and, sort of discussing um, what and feeling sorry for like Dante's deceased uh, love Beatrice. And that's why like uh, Virgil in the movie was having conversation with Virgin Mary. And that's why they sent um, Virgil to help him guide, be a tour guide essentially mm-hmm. through his journey. So that's like, if you didn't know that, from the the story it, in the beginning it would be confusing like who are all these characters just popping yeah. up randomly yep and just as a side note i'd also say that i don't think i've ever seen another movie with so many naked bodies before oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah the naked bodies yeah, it's, well it's the torment <laughs> thing yeah yeah it is yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah yeah i mean it's uh yeah like living in a volcano the clothes are all burnt away i guess <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure that most of the guys have like loincloth. Oh yes, they do. So that, they do totally. <laughs> but that's well, like, that's that's a necessity. Yeah. yeah, even even then they had that, that much decency. But but uh, it was um, bizarre to say the least. It was it was a bit eye opening. <laughs> well, I think it has to. I wonder if because it's in the paintings. So if you look at so I, I actually right. did look at. Well, the... it's a spiritual analogy in that you know, yeah. you know, 
So, I'm sorry, you were saying that about the paintings? Yeah, so if you look at the paintings, that's it all, it's all from the paintings. So in the paintings, it has all those imagery, the naked bodies and mm-hmm. stuff like that, the torment right. Right, from hell. But also, like, um, the painting itself, I would say, is inspired by the, some of the Renaissance painters who had images of hell as well. Right. Uh, it starts with a B. Bosch. Ah. So Bosch, if you guys know um, uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Can't pull the image up in my head, no. Yeah, so so Hieronymus Bosch is, looks like is a, is a, is Dutch, born in the Netherlands, and uh, his notable paintings called the uh, Garden of Earthly Delights, temptation mm. of uh, Saint Anthony, and some of these classic paintings dating back to uh, you know fourteen fifteen hundred uh, like around that time. Uh, he worked on this, I think, for twenty years or something like that. Whoa! But if you look at this particular painting, yeah, it's a, it's all that imagery of the naked body theme, uh, also of just grotesqueness and uh, all that stuff. It's all in these the paintings that he he works on himself. A lot of I think is traced back to his, and, and I'm sure he himself is inspired by other people, no no doubt. But that's mm-hmm. kind of the the big name. That inspires many others for paintings of pictures of hell and what they look like, and I am sure it has inspired. I, I haven't researched, but I, I bet you it's going to inspire this guy, Gustavo Dore, as he's making his wood carving art. Hmm. It's gotta because he would have known about these Renaissance artists. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. because they're so highly influential. You know what I mean? So. Hmm. The book Dante's Inferno was written like 1860, something like that? Right. But the painting is, uh, the, all these woodwork, uh, artwork is much later. It's in the 1800s. So the actual artwork, which the movie is based on, almost less the, the book itself, if that mm. makes sense. All that imagery, it's heavily, you know, lifted, you know, frame by frame from these, uh, the artwork. Hmm. So. Hmm. Any other uh, thoughts or comments? Well, just going back to everything that they basically did in the movie that was just so impressive with their special effects, they had rigs on some of the actors to make them fly what else did they do the face paint and body paint uh what else oh we are i already mentioned the puppetry with the animals which is pretty amazing well really it's the whole visual effects of composition like to combine multiple sort of footage you know of like you were saying bob really of you know taking a one pass of people upside down on mm-hmm. floors and flipping them upside down and taking another pass, essentially optically printing visual effects on top of another. And that, that's how they did it is they would have a optical printer taking multiple film negatives and making sort of almost a copy of one on top of the other. Um, I don't think you were here for that, Bob, but like Lily, remember back there was a Christmas uh, experimental short. Oh, yeah, the Christmas one. That was one of the first ones we watched. Yeah, and that's what he did. He uh, he made a short of the Santa Claus going down the chimney, and he played that back in a projector. And then he used another camera, a secondary camera, to, to film uh, another scene to the so- side of the frame, and therefore the camera would capture both the projected image, which is projected on the wall, and the live action that's happening next to the projected image, therefore compositing both images. Does that make sense? Mm. 
So as if, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. the character on the left is thinking, has a thought bubble with another scene. Right. So that's like conceptually very similar. I, and I, I don't know how they did it in this movie, but like the way they're doing composition is probably the biggest It's like a innovation. split screen, but not split with a, with a soft... So it looks like one scene. Well, it's a composition. I mean, that's how composition uh, modern yeah. visual effects are done. If you think about it, is that right. when they do green screen, they knock out the green, <laughs> exactly, and they replace the green with whatever it is you know that they they're supposed to be in. You know, so so this is way ahead of the time. Is that goes. but conceptually? I mean, George Melia did that. I mean, that's all the composition, all the visual effects, right? With a trip to the moon. So, yeah, mm. it's like nothing new under the sun by the time that these films came around. <laughs> mm. But yes, you're right. Like so, uh, above and beyond the musical compositions, uh, definitely uh, all those other, you know, uh, technology techniques of of um, various different uh, set pieces and costume design are certainly pretty cool um i did think that some of the um long shots too were were pretty amazing like when they're in a mountain somewhere with fog they're probably in a mountain with fog somewhere (laughs) yeah that sorry um yeah i thought that was impressive as well the the scenes with the fog or if they have crowd of people like stretching on to the horizon that's probably a crowd of people Mm. in a big hill somewhere or if they're on a boat and they're, you know, paddling towards some somewhere, that's probably in a in a in a lake or sea <laughs> somewhere mm, heading towards right. some mountain. That's probably real. <laughs> right? Yeah. So So I, I like that too, because there's some aspects of this film that captures uh, related to things we talked about last week, which was or the previous podcast rather, but uh, about just um capturing a slice of life. Um, that might not exist anymore today, you know? Mm-hmm. And then some of the Circles of Hell was about just raining and weather effect. That was pretty cool, too. Like, yeah. That's a... I, I really wonder how they got all that water wherever they were. <laughs> yeah. What if it's real rain? And they just started shooting. It's raining now. Let's do it. That that is an <laughs> idea. I mean, that it could is. have been a thing. Yeah. Oh, I was. Well, this isn't one hundred percent related to what. I mean, it is, but isn't because of this movie though. I actually was looking up, um, if the Devil's Pitchfork was inspired by Dante's Inferno, but then because of the props that they were using, I don't know what why it came to me, but. Uh, it's just one of those things that mm-hmm. because of this movie, it made me intrigued to find out because I actually thought because the movie is 110 years old, this is where more of our modern imagery comes from. And in essence, no, it doesn't. It all started around the, uh, like they call it the high middle ages. I'm guessing that's possibly the 1500s. That's where Bosch's painting came along. But Bosch's mm. painting is so influential with, our image of hell and all that stuff. Because mm-hmm. until then, I mean, I don't know for sure, but <laughs> there weren't a lot of uh, physical paintings actualized, uh, you know, as artwork yet, I don't think. At least to, mm. not to that degree, to that gory degree. Yeah. So check it out. And you guys have time to, to just Google uh, uh, B-O-S-C-H. Not the Amazon show, but the <laughs> mm-hmm. the painter from Renaissance era and the, the Garden of Earthly Delights is the big one, uh, amongst others. There are other artists, too. He's not the sole contributor, but he was a big one. Um, I'm sure there are others, too, that I, I distinctly remember seeing that when I had uh, art class a long time ago. But mm. there's a few of those influences, just incredible. Highly influential. Mm. Glad I brought it up then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Any other parting thoughts about this? This, uh, I, I think uh, I, I may have missed one 
uh, significant part of the work itself and why it was significant, at least in, in the in history of uh, just literature itself. So when it was, the work itself was written and, um, and came out, uh, the common language of that time was Latin. You, you, you either wrote in Greek or Latin. That was pretty much it. It, it, it was the dominant um, intellectual sort of language of its time, mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that the local cultures, the vernacular culture, still existed. Hmm. And so for Italy, uh, you know, everything was Latin. But, you know, this is the first work. Uh, Dante really wanted to write this in Italian and made it so, I guess, localized that it, it all of the flavors and all of the textures of the story like can only be told in Italian is the why he, <laughs> the reason why he created that way. And like that really uh, kind of set the country on its course of like Italian literature, essentially, mm-hmm. because for a while, a lot of that was lost, I think due to just the, not just the crusades, but a lot of the historical political happenings and wars right. and different things happening where a lot of the culture was becoming more normalized, right? So yep. to a degree where we could only use Greek and Roman um, yep. ways to communicate. Um, I mean, there are still people who say that you can't, you can't watch an opera unless it's in Latin. Right. So, so the point is that, you know, this art, this uh, author finally was like, I'm going to take that back and kind of reclaim his Italian culture back in the time that, the original work was published, right? Hmm. And that's the significance of uh, Dante's Inferno is that they just he uh. put a stick in the in the ground, you know, for the culture of Italian language and culture. Hmm. Um, along with all the other influences that we just talked about. So it's funny, you know. I'm a I'm a Star Trek fan, and uh, Star Trek continually references uh works you know it's supposed to be in the 24th century and uh continually reference works and says well you can't appreciate this work unless you hear it in its original klingon <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know so you, it's some, some, something like that you know yeah it's uh i think it's uh star trek 6 right it's like you can't you can't appreciate shakespeare until you read in the original <laughs> klingon <laughs> well they do it in the tv series as well so it started even in the original series. They yeah. did that. Pretty funny stuff. Yeah. But you can see where it comes from. This sort of... It comes from what you were just saying, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Any other parting thoughts before we conclude? Um, I think I mentioned all that I wanted to talk about. Um, and I think I learned a lot more about the movie too, just from us discussing it. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend uh, at least reading some of the synopsis of the Nine Circles of Hell because once you do, at least for me, because I hadn't really read the epic poem myself, but once you know what the book story is. And then when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, like that's Virgin Mary in the beginning talking to Virgil mm-hmm. like that, like things like that starts to make sense. Um, actually, talking about this reminds me for uh, one small bit is that uh, he himself, Dante, the, 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 the author in real life, he took up a political cause that was on an opposition party from side of the mainstay. So he's kind of in the minority of his voice or whatever the complicated stuff he was doing and essentially he was like exile politically. And so, um, at the last circle of hell, he put all like his political comp- uh, uh, opponents into the actual story of Inferno. Mm. Cause he wrote this right before he died. He, <laughs> I don't think he knew he was going to die, but like he put like their, <laughs> nudge, their nudge, real people wink, wink. into, this is where you're heading. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. He's like, these political opponents and these people that, and that's why it references so many people 
A yeah. lot of them were just simply real. Like they were like the real neighbors or people he actually knew. <laughs> he just put them in the story. <laughs> the taboo you're not supposed to do in writing, right? Right. Well, he didn't care. I, I, <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. I think to get back he didn't, people, he didn't just insult people. He put them in hell. <laughs> he, literally. Right? In, in his story, right? So. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the – so that was the ninth uh, circle. I think it was fraud or something. Let me mm. look this up. Oh, okay. So the last – the final two circles of hell includes all the sinners of ordinary fraud and treacherous fraud. <laughs> hmm. So all the people that he thought was fraudsters would, you know, lie and cheat people out of whether they want his political opponents he placed into the final circle of hell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's got some issues, this guy. <laughs> but And yet there are statues of painting and so of them all over. Yeah. That reminds me of another point because I found that, I mean, I haven't really read the book. I just found that interesting that Dante being, I feel like writing a work like this, you'd have to be kind of a little bit judgmental. So... Oh, complete, what, you, what you were just saying, it, it, you know, it's pretty much the extreme of that, yes. So when it's... you say there's there's this level degree of sin and then it's this level degree of sin and who's the one to put them in one box or the other you know well it's dante so what's interesting yeah. is that he had a circle for like adulteress and yet he himself was because he was married but he was lusting out this you know Uh-oh. beatrice like it's so contradictory right he himself was the person that should be in these circles but he wrote the work. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Right. That was, I thought that was fascinating. It is. Physician but that's just people. Myself. I, think. I, think, <laughs> I think it's just people. Any people is like that. It's amusing. It is. All right. Any other parting thoughts? Nope. No. Yeah, I... I uh, I I was gonna try to take us through all of the circles, but I think you guys can read that uh, separately. Um, but yeah, I, you know this work is highly influential from just a literary work work of art, but also the 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 artist who created the the wood carving art that inspired this is also influential and also inspired by early. Uh, Renaissance painters of right. commissioned works of images of hell. And also just finally the film. I'm not sure if there's been any other versions since this one. That would be interesting to find out. Hmm. I wonder if there are. Um, I think with the amount of... Uh, visual effects you know could potentially see <laughs> it being done I mean the one thing I'll say is that um, there was a film by Robin Williams which very much went on the same theme yeah. where his wife died and he went through hell to find her and... yeah. do you remember the title? Uh, I, I, I saw it in the theaters uh it's. I, I've almost got it, but I can't quick list that. Uh, what dreams may come. What dreams may come. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And when I when I saw that, I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, it's a complete take from Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Yeah, Robin Williams does uh, pretty interesting movies. Uh, <laughs> in general, I mean, he does comedy, but he's quite a thoughtful guy and he's over the years done a lot of great films like this one i think i saw this in the theater but you're right yeah that was one of the things that i was thinking of but i don't think i've seen any other um adaptations not 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 direct adaptations of yeah. i don't know, 
Yeah, it'll be inter- interesting if uh, anybody ever adapts this using modern effects and stuff like that and can kind of keep it could be close. very eerie. It would be. <laughs> It'd be like Haxen all over yep. again. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why I keep linking to Haxen. I just feel like uh, that one's so striking visually in a very similar vein to this film. Just visually. It's, it's mm. totally striking, right? So, hmm. yep. I guess in the sense of, what do I want to say? Probably the the set, of course. There's some similarities there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the theme. Look, but then again, that was more about witchcraft, and then this is more right. uh, like historical fiction. I'm not. I don't know, but I know what you mean. It's very. They're similar, but at the same time, they're totally different movies. Oh yeah, for sure. They're definitely totally different movies because this one's uh, adapting a literary work, whereas the other one is not. Um, but uh, I just thought visually, it's just anytime you have a film trying to uh, visually represent, uh, you know, evil or Satan or Lucifer or hell or any of those things, I just always find that like interesting that they have the mm. a visual take on it. It's almost hard to imagine, for me, um, a take on something where it's trying to explain hell in a way that's completely new and separate from Dante's Inferno. That, yeah, exactly. That I think that was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> it's almost it's almost inconceivable, right. but because it's so groundbreaking. It's right. It's so fundamental to our culture that to someone to separate it, to literally separate it in their mind and say, no, I'm not going to go that route. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So that concludes our uh, look at um, the Infernal 1911 film uh, by uh, a variety of people uh, worked on it. And uh, it's the first Italian film, feature film, feature length. uh, And it's quite the epic. And uh, it almost makes sense that they would uh, adapt Dante's Inferno because of how influential that work itself uh, was as well. And, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to get um, in terms of DVD. because of a limited release as we talked about before so that the best way to watch it is still on that youtube link i'll, I'll place all that link into our uh, podcast show notes and um with that we can uh conclude this week's uh podcast and please uh again uh thank you listeners um wherever you're finding us um if you can place a review or star rating on uh especially apple podcast uh you can find us more of our work on watching silent films plural watching silent films.wordpress.com or you can email and you can also email us at watching silent films at gmail.com and uh with that we'll say thank you and uh thank you bob thank you lily and uh we'll chat later thank you thanks all peace out see ya